This is KJZZ, your news and information station in Phoenix and across Arizona. I'm Tiara Vianne. Here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. It's the podcast designed to catch you up on some highlights from around the region. And thanks so much for listening for the week of February 26, 2024. Republican Carrie Lake said recently that she wants to look forward on the campaign trail for a U.S. Senate seat in Arizona. But Democrats in the state are eager to remind voters of her past, like remarks opposing abortion rights. Ben Giles reports. In October, the same month Lake announced her candidacy for the U.S. Senate, the Arizona Democratic Party launched the Lake Tapes. I am 100 percent pro-life. I think the Supreme Court uh, did a, a very smart thing. On social media, they post snippets of Lake's past statements, everything from false claims of stolen elections to her support for overturning Roe v. Wade. Then there's Lake favoring the more extreme of two abortion bans on the books in Arizona. One law bans abortions after 15 weeks. The other, which dates back to Arizona's first territorial legislature in the 1860s, is a near total ban. So it will prohibit abortion in Arizona except to save the life of a mother. And I think we're going to be um, setting the paving the way and setting course for other states to follow. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, abortion hasn't been a winning issue for Republicans. GOP Senate campaigns were further complicated last week when the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are considered children. The National Republican Senatorial Committee issued a memo Friday warning candidates to clearly and concisely reject efforts to restrict IVF treatment, a treatment that some clinics in Alabama have paused in the wake of the ruling. About the same time as the memo was circulating, Lake tweeted a statement opposing restrictions to IVF. You can't take your chances with Carrie Lake. Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego, Lake's likely opponent in November, says the Alabama ruling is just the latest case of Republicans claiming to support reproductive freedoms when their actions don't match the rhetoric. When she says, I'm not for this, I am for this now, how can you trust someone who only months ago was saying it's okay to arrest uh, providers of abortion care? During her gubernatorial campaign in 2022, Lake said she supported overturning Roe v. Wade because she viewed abortion as an issue of states' rights. Now a Senate candidate, Lake says she'd vote against a federal abortion ban. Whether she supports a nationwide or statewide ban, Democrats see the issue as a vulnerability for Republicans like Lake. It's so important. Reproductive freedom and abortion access is going to be the tip of the spear. Minnie Timuraju is the president of Reproductive Freedom for All. At a campaign stop with Gallego in Phoenix last week, she boasted of his support for eliminating the Senate filibuster to protect abortion rights, a promise that echoes President Joe Biden's vow to sign a bill codifying Roe v. Wade. The perfect thing is you have Rubin at the top of the ticket in the state and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket nationally who are making this the issue and are being really authentic and bold about the solutions. Timuraju is also banking on a groundswell of support from an expected ballot measure to enshrine abortion rights in Arizona's Constitution. But there's still work to be done to connect the right to an abortion to campaigns up and down the ballot. The hard work is in tying it all together and making sure folks don't get zoned out from the flood of information that's about to hit 
a state like Arizona in a presidential contest. But she's encouraged, as are Democrats nationally, that every time abortion has been on the ballot, voters protect abortion rights. Ben Giles, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news, through our Q&AZ reporting project, a listener asked, what is the oldest Arizona ranch that is still operating? Sierra Bonita Ranch in Wilcox was the first permanent American cattle ranch in the state, and it's still going. As Bridget Dowd reports, it's been in the same family since 1872. About 200 miles, or a three-hour drive, southeast of Phoenix lies the city of Wilcox. Another 30-minute drive on more rural roads, some of which are just dirt, will take you to Sierra Bonita Ranch, where the sounds of the city are replaced by birds chirping and a breeze whistling through the trees. That's where I met Jesse Hooker Davis on his 60,000-acre property, walking through the stalls where he feeds his horses every morning. How many horses do you have? Um, I've scaled down, so now I've probably got about 80. While 80 might sound like a lot to some people, Davis says the ranch was once even larger. It's about a third of the size it was when his great-great-great-grandfather, Henry Clay Hooker, founded Sierra Bonita. Started it 152 years ago in 1872. He was always a beef man, but one day the he was driving cattle through here and they stampeded and they decided this looked like a good place to call home. Jesse pays the bills by raising about 600 cattle on the same plot of land today. So we have beef cattle, and predominantly our herd is as a base herd of Hereford cattle. But we also have incorporated a red Angus and black Angus bulls for crossbreeding, and it's called heterosis. So we also have red baldies and black baldies as well. While some things have changed since 1872, many of the structures are still original, made out of adobe and wood framing. The main house was deemed a historic landmark by the National Park Service in 1964, and some cowboy traditions live on as well. We use four-wheelers and trucks and stuff, but that's more for chores and checking water. But as far as gathering cattle, it's, it's all done horseback the way it's always been done in the past. That's because vehicles leave tracks damaging the land and the grass. It's not just the horses that help out on the ranch either. Every creature plays a role, from the piglets to chickens, dogs, and even cats. Being as it's how old the ranch is, you definitely need some help with, with fighting the mice. And snakes as well. They'll kill some snakes. With all those animals, Jesse has his hands full, and no two days are alike. When you're talking about taking care of the health and wellness of the land and the, and the animals, your best laid plans generally don't always come true when you're making your list at the coffee table in the morning. And he says running a ranch requires him to know a little bit about everything. If you're an ecologist and you are a botanist and you are a veterinarian all at the same time, as well as when you have your own houses, you are a plumber, electrician, a roofer and everything else in between. After all, rearing a calf is only a small part of his job. He also has to make sure his operation isn't doing ill will to the land and that it can be sustained for years to come. There are certain people that do what I call burn and turn ranches where they buy a ranch and overstock it and then just sell out and move. But my family's been here a long time, so I understand the capacity and, and what's, what kind of numbers this land will hold and withstand and be able to flourish. Of course, Jesse's not doing it alone. He has several workers and two other families living on the property as well, which means the Hooker family isn't the only one with fond memories of growing up on the ranch. Bill Whelan runs a ranch of his own in California now, but in the 1950s, he was running around Sierra Bonita with his cousins while his uncle Charlie worked there. After 
Uncle Charlie would uh, milk the cows, and he'd go back to the barn. We'd go get in the pens with them calves and ride them like we was riding bulls. <laughs> so we had big fun there for a long time. Whelan remembers Jesse's grandmother, Jacqueline, better known as Rinky Elizabeth Hooker Hughes. She passed away about 15 years ago, which is when Jesse took full control over Sierra Bonita. And he runs it, for the most part, the same way it was 152 years ago. And I'm proud of that. It's uh, not that common for a company to stick around that long. I guess we could call it a company, but it's more of a lifestyle. And while there are definitely trying times, he still finds that lifestyle extremely gratifying. There's something about having fresh air and clean, crisp water, no traffic, hearing all the birds chirping uh, in the springtime, and living amongst nature is, is a true privilege. It really is. He plans for it to continue as a cattle ranch for decades more to come. For KJZZ News, I'm Bridget Dowd, reporting from Wilcox. You can ask your own question at qaz.kjzz.org. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Fronteras News. At the height of border wall construction under former President Donald Trump, more than 100 saguaros were dug out of environmentally delicate areas along the U.S.-Mexico border to make room for border infrastructure. More than four years later, a lot of that work is still being repaired. Tori Gantz was in Tucson to learn why the saguaro is worth protecting. In 2019, the U.S. government was under pressure by Trump to speed up construction of the border wall. We need strong barriers and walls. Nothing else is going to work. Everyone knows it. Everybody's saying it now. Just a question of time. Nearly four years later, the Government Accountability Office, the investigative arm of Congress, reported some of the extent of the damage the border wall caused to Southern Arizona cultural and natural resources. What we have in the Sonoran Desert is one of the most species-rich, remarkable desert ecologies in the world. Plant ecologist Peter Breslin met with me at the University of Arizona's Tumamac Hill Desert Laboratory. Hundreds of prickly-spined southwest sentinels spread themselves across Tumamac Hill and up the Tucson Mountains. The keystone of that whole ecosystem is the saguaro. It is home to many species of birds. It provides food. Breslin says if saguaros are struggling, that could mean the whole Sonoran Desert ecosystem is too. When you move a saguaro, you're putting it in a location that is probably significantly different from where it naturally germinated and grew. That's part of the reason why we're concerned about preserving space where saguaros grow rather than counting on our ability to restore space. Customs and Border Protection said it relocated at least 100 saguaros along the patrol road used by agents on the Arizona-Mexico border since 2019. According to the GAO report, a National Park Service official told auditors as many as half of the saguaros did not survive the move. GAO Director Ana Maria Ortiz conducted the audit. She told CBP and the Interior Department to coordinate to fix the problem. There are many people, including the local indigenous people who are affected, and without that coordination, 
between them to figure out how to move forward, they may just be chipping piecemeal at certain parts of the project. The saguaros affected grew near a border road in Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument. Others grew within Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge and on the Tana Atam Nation. Tribal leaders at the time were opposed to border wall construction in the area. Here's then Atam Chair Ned Norris addressing Congress. For us, this is no different from DHS building a 30-foot wall along Arlington Cemetery or to the grounds of the National Cathedral. The nation's legislative council passed a resolution in May 2021 affirming the sacred nature of saguaros. It considers the cactus an autumn person. Nation officials later told auditors that saguaros are significant to autumn culture and livelihood as they provide an important fruit source. Lake and Jordal is with the Center for Biological Diversity. The vast majority of the saguaros that were transplanted were already doomed to die the moment that they were moved from the places where they had been growing, uh, in many cases, for over a century. But when President Joe Biden took office, he issued a proclamation to pause border wall construction. Jordahl says... That didn't necessarily mean that they had to stop trying to care for these saguaros. Then the Defense Department canceled border plant salvation projects in January 2021. It prevented biological staff from watering and tending to the transplanted saguaros. Environmental groups sent the Biden administration criteria on how to redeem ecologically fragile areas. One of those was to put the border wall funding toward habitat restoration. GAO auditors told KJZZ the agency doesn't know how much restoration will actually cost. In an email, CBP said it's still working with Interior to follow the GAO's recommendations. But the report status remains marked red on all points, indicating that limited progress has been made. For KJZZ News, I'm Tori Gantz, reporting from the Tumamak Hill Desert Laboratory. In politics news. If you want to be an Arizona congressman, you have to live in Arizona. But there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that says you have to live in the district you hope to represent. From our politics desk, Wayne Shutsky reports on congressional candidates testing the limits of running beyond district boundaries and whether that matters to voters. Blake Masters spent 2022 traveling all over Arizona in a failed bid for the U.S. Senate. Late last year, the Tucson Republican published a video announcing his new campaign to represent Congressional District 8 in the West Valley suburbs of Phoenix. We need new leaders, people who haven't spent their lives in politics. That's why I'm running for Congress, to fight for Arizona's 8th. Masters' Tucson residency has already become campaign fodder. A social media account associated with Abe Hamaday, another Republican in the race, posted a Google Maps screenshot with directions to the journey from Tucson to CD8, a 130-mile drive. But the attempt to poke fun at Masters backfired. Eagle-eyed users pointed out the map was posted from a residence in North Scottsdale, a city well outside of the CD8 boundaries and a city that Hamaday calls home. You know, people coming from Tucson to run, um, people coming that, that ran for other state offices, um, to be blunt, you know, I think there's a certain uh, opportunism when it comes to politics at times. Former West Valley lawmaker Rick Gray isn't surprised outsiders like Masters and Hamaday, who narrowly lost a statewide race for attorney general in 2022, are having a go in CD8. It's the second most Republican-leaning district in Arizona. That means whichever candidate wins the primary is almost guaranteed to win the general election. But Gray says CD8 voters care about a candidate's roots. He described retiring Representative Debbie Lesko as a model candidate for the district, someone who has a longer track record of delivering for the community and living in the community. 
so I think that's that's what we're looking at, and I think that's uh, what um, I would say probably the majority of the voters are going to want to maintain. Both Masters and Hamaday addressed concerns over their residency at a CD8 forum in November. Hamaday said he lived in the district as a child. For me, I actually lived there. I went to a school, three different schools up there. Masters, for his part, moved out of his Tucson home and into CD8. So after lots of conversations with my wife and we prayed about it, uh, we made that big decision, hey, this is, this is the right opportunity for me to contribute and me to serve. So we'll be moving up here uh, in the new year. It's not just Republicans who are crossing congressional district lines. Democrat Ami Shah is in a crowded primary race for the chance to take on Republican Congressman David Schweikert in CD1. Like Masters, Shaw is an outsider, moving to call the district he's now running in home. Until recently, Shaw lived next door in CD3, a safe district for Democrats represented by Congressman Ruben Gallego. I got into this because I wanted to turn Arizona blue. Uh, I, I wanted to run to, to flip a seat and to make the most difference I could in the world. And um, we know that CD3 is going to be a blue seat. Marlene Galan Woods made a similar move in May. The widow of former Republican Attorney General Grant Woods also lived in CD3, but bought a home in CD1 last year, around the time she announced she was running for Congress as a Democrat. A spokeswoman for her campaign says Woods is the only Democrat in the race who can defeat Schweikert in November, something Democrats have failed to do for several consecutive cycles. Shayna Jaffe, a Scottsdale Democrat who has not decided who she will support, said a candidate's connection to the community, not their exact address, is what matters to her. If they live a mile in one direction or the other, that to me does not determine whether or not you can represent um, this area as a whole at a federal level. But Najafi says it is incumbent on all candidates, in district and out, to engage with voters at forums and other events to make it clear where they stand on key policy issues. Paul Bentz, a pollster with high ground, says that can be challenging for candidates who live, or at least recently lived, outside the district they're running to represent. But he notes that candidates have overcome that hurdle before. Going all the way back to Senator McCain when he first ran for Congress wasn't originally from the district that he ran in. Both Masters and Hamaday have a name recognition advantage after running statewide campaigns in 2022. But only time will tell if that is enough to convince voters to support them over homegrown talent. Wayne Shutsky, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's been a busy week and you may need a little distraction. Try KJZZ's Play. We just launched a puzzle page. It's got a daily and weekly puzzle. You can share it with family, friends, and colleagues. But don't do what I did and share it with your boss. She's so competitive. Give it a go at play.kjzz.org. And now from the show, co-host Mark Brody talks with a comedian about her dream cast. Jetta Jurians may not be a name you recognize, yet. But the Valley native is hoping to change that. She's been working her way up the comedy ladder since leaving the Valley for L.A. at 19. She's appeared on the sketch comedy show Studio C and is currently a member of the comedy troupe The Upright Citizens Brigade in New York City. In addition to being a comedian, she's also a writer and actor. She performed in the pre-Broadway premiere of The Karate Kid, The Musical. I caught up earlier with Jury Anns to talk about her comedy career so far, and we started with whether she's someone who always knew she wanted to be in comedy on stage or in front of a camera. Yeah, I actually don't remember a time where I didn't want that. Um, like, I'm sure I developed the desire at some point in my life, but I can't actually track when that happened. I just like have always wanted to do this and it was always kind of my dream. And so 
you know, in my head, even as a kid, I was like actively trying to pursue this career. (laughs) (laughs) Were you somebody who as a child would try to make grownups laugh or make your classmates laugh? Oh, totally. I was uh, a certified try hard. I, I always say that I got into comedy because I have I have five sisters and uh, I just wanted to make them laugh. And so okay. that just kind of snowballed into me doing it in for my career. <laughs> but yeah, it's like it just always was my desire to make people laugh and entertain. When you were going to school, you know, high school, I, I understand you went to uh, to college briefly here in the Phoenix area. Like, did you do theater? Were you doing comedy stuff in, in school when you were here? Yeah, yeah. I um, I did theater all through high school. I was on my high school's improv team. And I think it was cool because I ended up getting cast as like the comedic relief parts. Okay. Um, Which really set me up for the career I wanted. Because normally, like when you're a young woman... I like, I didn't see myself as like an ingenue or like a basic leading lady. Like I saw myself as like the wacky old lady who like enters in and says a few funny lines. Cause that's what I got cast as in, in high school. So when I moved to LA and I started pursuing acting as a career, um, I still kind of saw myself that way. And, and in film and TV, it's not like I would really ever, <laughs> ever get cast as like a wacky old lady. Like the time for that is coming. It's just, you know, years and years away. Um, but like, because I like saw myself, I saw all the potential of like what I could do in this broad spectrum, the area that you can kind of be all of those wacky characters is in comedy, is in sketch comedy, is in improv. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that I was exposed to silly parts like that because I, I had that expectation going into my career being like, you know, I, I love playing an ingenue. I love playing really anything. But I was like, I, I want to be able to do all that crazy stuff that I know I can do because I got to do it when I was a kid. It's really interesting to hear you say that, you know, you were exposed to this broad spectrum of things, because I would imagine it wouldn't have been too difficult for you to also feel pigeonholed as kind of like the wacky neighbor, as you say, who comes in and says a couple funny lines, and then leaves again. But it seems like you really saw the bigger picture there and saw a lot of how there could be opportunity here beyond just sort of this one, you know, sort of typecast character. Right. Yeah. Like I think sometimes people uh, tend to put themselves into a small slot. And I think that's in a way like the nature of the industry, you really feel the need to brand yourself and say like, this is what I do. Um, But I always tell people not to limit themselves. I'm like, you, you really don't know what you're capable of until you try. And so even as a comedian, I try to like really seek out parts where I can be dramatic and like, you know, I'm classically trained. Like I, I still like to do um, things where I have to be dropped in and really challenged. And I try not to typecast myself because, you know, the industry is going to do that in its own way. And so I, the last thing I want to do is to limit my own potential. That's like the last thing I could do as someone who wants a, you know, fruitful career and an exciting life for myself. I want to always leave room for me to pursue every opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned you moved to LA, um, but you didn't like get a start in, you know, quote unquote, the biz at a super young age, right? Like your your mom basically put, put some age limits on you before you could yes. like get representation and move to LA. 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm so grateful for that now. Of course, as a 12 year old, I was like, you're ruining my dreams. Of course. But, but, you know, I'm so glad she, she always said like, you can get an agent when you're old enough to go drive and get one. Cause you know, I've, I've five sisters, I have a big family. I'm, there wasn't a world in which, um, everyone could accommodate getting me to, auditions as a kid or as a teenager. And so I didn't get my first agent until I would think I was like 17 or 18. Okay. Uh, and yeah. And then, and then I, I did a year of college and I kind of planned on going to college and doing the whole thing, even though I was, <laughs> I was not a very good student. <laughs> I was like very, very focused and set on acting and so I would like ditch class and go like hang in the theater building and like you know whatever huh. and I'm I'm grateful that um my family believed in me enough to like kind of let me go off the the path and um move to LA at 19 even though like that the fruits of that labor didn't like pan out right away like it wasn't like I moved to 19 and then like Mr. Hollywood opened the pearly gates for me and was like, welcome, we've been waiting for you. Here's a, an Oscar. But like it, it more and more over the course of time became clear that like this is the, the right thing for me. And like I did make the right decision in doing that. Um, and I'm just really grateful that my family was supportive of that, even though it was, I think, really tough on particularly my mom. Yeah. Well, so like what was it like for you when you first moved out to L.A. and really got started? Because, you know, I don't have to tell you, show business can be really difficult. And as you say, it wasn't like, you know, they just threw open the gates and said, hey, welcome. You know, here's here's your uh, you know your best act actor role here. Right, right. Yeah, it was uh it was really difficult. I think I think the the most difficult thing about it actually wasn't the industry itself. I think it was just being 19. Like being mm. 19 is weird. <laughs> you're just like <laughs> you're like supposed to be an adult and it's like all you've ever wanted. I just remember being a kid being like and one day I'll be, you know, an adult living in LA and I'll be able to do it. And then you get there and you're like, cool. Now, what? <laughs> I think, you know, I was like really, really broke. I was living in North Hollywood. I was like still really focused on like making friends and figuring out who I was. And I didn't really know what you were supposed to do. I was a big like actor nerd. I was obsessed with like every aspect of the industry. And then the moment that I finally just like let go of all the expectations and all of, you know, what I thought I was supposed to do once I finally just like let myself enjoy it and have fun and like do the thing I love. And that's really when things started to click for me and opportunities started to present themselves. That's actor, comedian and writer Jetta Jurians. More of our conversation in just a moment. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And now back to my conversation with actor, comedian, and writer Jetta Jurians. She grew up in the Valley and went to high school here. As we heard, she then moved to L.A. and is now in New York City pursuing her comedy career. Well, New York was kind of like a fun, exciting chain of events. Um, I like I like to say that, like, you know, for me my career has panned out with like little small windows opening over time. And I just sort of trusting my gut and following those windows. So New York was kind of one of those windows. I had this like deep 
desire to move here for whatever reason. Um, I mean, it's not completely random. I did like my first big theater project uh, like a year and a half ago, and it may be transferring to Broadway at some point. And I made a lot of connections out here. One of my agents is out here. And I had just done some work in New York and, you know, as a comedian, SNL is out here. So there were a lot Mm -hmm. of good solid reasons to move but i think the biggest one of all was that i just really wanted to and uh the actors and writers were on strike uh for the majority of last year and so it just kind of felt like a good opportunity to do something scary and trust my gut and so far i've been like super super happy with that decision it's been wonderful well it seems like at least in one respect it's really worked out in the sense that you've landed on upright citizens brigade Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm and that has been so fantastic so far. Um, And I in general, I just the comedy that I've been able to do out here has been so much fun. I have a show tonight, even it's just, uh, yeah, there's so much live comedy, live theater. And I'm still going out for the same TV and movie stuff that I was back in L.A. Well, so the place you are now with Upright Citizens Brigade, like this is obviously a place that a lot of really well-known comics and comedians have come out of. Oh, yeah. Some of my absolute favorite comedians are UCB alum. And it's it's so exciting. I really like being I like being challenged when it comes to comedy. I like being in a room where I'm like, oh, my gosh, everyone's so good and I'm growing and I'm learning and my brain is like firing off. And that's how it feels to be on my team so far. Everyone's just just wickedly funny and really welcoming. I mean, on my team, it's uh, the majority of the people on my team have been on uh, UCB teams before and they've just been super welcoming. And yeah, it's it's been fantastic. I'm so happy. And do you still have the dream of being on SNL? I do. It's such a finicky dream because it's so, I mean, it, it not different from any other show. It's There are only so many slots, but it is kind of a thing where, you know, they're trying to have a really fleshed out cast where everyone brings something different to the table. And so it is like so random who gets on and when, but I've seen that I've been, you know, for example, Chloe Feynman, I was a fan of hers for years before she was on SNL. See, seeing, you know, comedians that I'm peers with or that like I know makes it seem so much more possible. And yeah, I've been, I've my, my first audition for SNL, I was like 24. And so I've auditioned for, for SNL every year since. And every single time it's, it's just a dream, but it is a fleeting one. It's like one of those like smoke, like, you know, it's like <laughs> you're trying to catch it, but how and like when, um, but if it does happen, I think that, um, I will explode and become a star in the sky because of this. <laughs> this is my biggest dream of all time. Well, I mean, I, I would think that like for someone who does what you do, like, I don't want to say that is the pinnacle because that would suggest anything else that you do is is not quite up to that. But like, that's a really big deal if you're a comedian to be on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it was the home base and the launching pad for so many great great talents. And like, you know, for example, Tina Fey has turned it into Mm -hmm. a career where she gets to produce and she gets to direct and she gets to write and she gets to be the head writer. And those sort of things really light my fire. Uh, You know, like talent like Mindy Kaling, who Mindy Kaling even only wrote for SNL, I think for like, maybe not even a full season, like half a season. And uh, but like her career is one that I really admire, because I really like to do everything. And so SNL kind of 
excites me in that way as well. Like the possibility to turn it into something more and uh, work with so many talented people. Well, it's interesting because it sounds like, yes, you definitely want to you know, be on screen, but you also kind of want to be the boss. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think I didn't know that that was going to be the vision for myself when I moved out to LA when I was 19. But you, you try more things and you kind of learn more about yourself. And like, I think my dreams grew with me, I would try something and be like, wait, I like, really, really like that. I always say I'm an actor, but like my dream is to do everything at the same time. Like, I'm like <laughs> if, if it were up to me, I would be like the showrunner, the head writer, the actor, the producer, executive producer of a show. And that would be like my real, real dream. So you talked about how, you know, you, you know, your family has been supportive of your, your mom, you know, looking back now, you really appreciate, you know, how she sort of reined you in a little bit maybe when you were younger absolutely like yeah. are they do they come out and, and see you in shows now are they able to to really appreciate like how far you've come oh totally I'm my family is my I mean like my home base they're the people I bounce everything off of they're the people I tell first about everything um I think I genuinely think my family has great taste so I really trust their instincts as well I um even this week I had an audition where I just was like, I sent it to my sisters. I sent it to my mom and I was like, what do you think? And, um, you know, my mom is the first phone call I make whenever I book anything. And uh. She, she seeing them in the audience of anything, it just moves me. There was a video once of like, I did a musical in, um, LA for the Hollywood fringe festival. My sisters and my mom came out to see it and it was like an emotional show, but after the show ended, my sisters were sobbing and I just came out, and started sobbing. Too. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you would think we were like reuniting after the war. Like we were all like holding each other, quivering. They're just so supportive. I love them so, so, so much. All right. So I know that this question is kind of like asking a parent to pick their favorite child, but <laughs> if you were to be able to sort of have your dream job with a dream cast, like who are some people that you would just love to be able to work with? Oh my gosh, I'm so obsessed with that question. Well, okay, I there are so many, so many amazing female comedians I would love to work with. Dream scenario. Um, I, I'm going to use famous people, but okay. I, I also keep in mind that like if it were up to me, so many of my like real life friends would be in this project. Sure, but, um, of course. But for the sake of people listening, I won't be like you know my friend Sawyer. Everyone will be like, who is that? <laughs> um, but but I think I would love to work with Iowa Debris. Uh, I just admire the heck out of her, um, Mindy Kaling. I, like co-producing a show with Mindy Kaling would be a dream come true. Uh, I love Quinta Burnson. I love, uh, oh boy, Rachel Sennett. I love, oh, there's so many amazing, honestly, Chloe Fineman. Um, okay. I love Lisa Gilroy. I love, there's so many, oh, Issa Rae. These are all just like female. <laughs> my, my dream, I think, would be to... Uh, and most, the majority of the things I write are very female centric, but I think like an ensemble comedy with female comedians is like my ultimate end all be all dream. <laughs> like that's what I would, if, if, you know, suddenly a check for like a bajillion dollars just floated down from the sky and landed in my hand, if I could make anything, it would be with all of those amazing women and just women in general. I just love female-centered storytelling, and I love female-centered humor. 
All right, we'll have to leave it there. That is Jetta Jurians, an actor, comedian, and writer based in New York. Jetta, it was really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much, and good luck. Thank you so much, Mark. It was so much fun. And finally, in education news. As Arizona is in desperate need of more healthcare professionals, some high schools are giving their students a head start. The Peoria Unified School District is expanding its program to do just that. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd has details. Three Peoria high schools have a medical assisting program. The district partners with several health care providers to give students who sign up real-world experience. Last week, it added a new one, Honor Health. Career and Technical Education Director Barbara Coakley says they start out with a medical science course, then they take a medical assisting course that has a lab component. And as part of that lab portion, the students do clinical rotations through different healthcare providers that hire medical assistants so that they can see what it would be like if they continue down this career pathway. Those rotations are mostly observational. Coakley says the district is seeing more students show interest in the medical field and wants to make sure there are enough opportunities to go around. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.